Thank you so much to the ensemble this morning. What a great job they did in leading us in worship this morning. So grateful for their time and effort that they've put into this. And I am thankful this morning that I don't have a sling on. <laughs> for the first time in 10 weeks. And uh, I still can't lift anything with my right arm for another two months. But I had a very good doctor's visit on Wednesday. And I can get dressed and eat and type with my right hand again. And believe me, that is a blessing, and I, I feel like I've been set free, and so very thankful for that, and again, thank you. Thank you so much for all of your prayers over these many weeks. Well, this morning, I would like you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and verses 1 through 7. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and verses 1 through 7. Last Sunday morning, we looked at two very non-traditional Christmas passages or passages that I used for Christmas. One was Psalm 8 and the other was Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9. Different passages for Christmas, and as I shared with you, I believe the whole Bible is about Christmas. But this morning, we come to the polar opposite. We come to perhaps the most traditional Christmas passage in all of the Bible in Luke 2, 1 through 7. In fact, if you remember at the end of last Sunday, I challenged us, which I love to do at this Christmas time, to embrace Christmas with the eyes and heart and innocence of a little child, to believe it all, to believe it's all true just as it is written. And this passage is so familiar and you have heard it and read it so many times that we have to be careful with passages like this that we haven't become over familiar. And so I would ask all of us, including myself, perhaps most importantly myself as the one sharing from it, that we see this with the eyes of a child, with the innocence of belief and faith. Luke writes this, of course, Luke, if you are familiar with the book of Acts, was a physician, but not as well known as that Luke was and is considered by scholars, both biblical and secular, to have been an outstanding historian, very meticulous with his details. And it is Luke that writes this and says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
Well, our first point this morning is allowed versus ordained. Allowed versus ordained. This morning I would like to challenge all of us with the thought that God meticulously ordained every detail of Christ's birth. That the God of heaven and earth, the creator and sustainer of all things, right down to the simplest, finest detail, ordained that Christ be born exactly the way that he was. Now, we often say that God allowed something to happen. I say that. And we especially use that when we hear of a tragedy or a disaster. There is a mass shooting. A bomb goes off. A plane crashes. There's a tornado or a hurricane or a flood and many people die. And we don't understand. And we may say, I may not understand why God allowed that to happen, but he did. And so we simply trust in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite knowledge. We trust him, we walk with him by faith, even though we may not understand why he allowed something to happen. And there will always be things, there always will be, folks, there will be things that must be assigned to the mystery of God's will we simply don't understand. But, but, when it comes to the birth of Christ, to the incarnation, we must go beyond the word allowed and use the word ordained. God ordained. Right down to the finest detail that these things should happen. God moved in the heart and mind of Caesar Augustus, the great Augustus of Rome, considered the best or greatest Caesar of all the Roman Caesars that once ruled. He was considered a benevolent ruler. He has been called the father of the Roman Empire. He was a very intellectual man. He was a man who loved literature, and most historians would today say that he was the greatest Caesar that Rome ever had. God moves in this man's heart. He moves in this man's mind and causes a census, a registration to be ordered at the exact time that Mary was to give birth. Now, if you study history, we find that Augustus actually ordered a whole system of registrations or census to be taken. This was one of them, and this one, Luke tells us, happened to take place when Quirinius was governor of Syria, so we are actually able to trace it historically, and this particular census was taken in order to move a young couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And I want you to keep in mind, I know I probably share this detail every Christmas, but I find it so fascinating. We have to remember that as far as we know, Mary and Joseph were very young. Joseph was probably in his late teens. Mary was probably somewhere around 13 or 14 years of age. I just think you just need to keep that in mind, that God moves the great Roman Empire to cause this young teenage couple to give birth to their child at exactly the time that God wanted that child to be born, and not only at the exact time, but in the exact place. For you see, the Messiah must be born in Bethlehem. 
because the prophecy of Micah foretold it. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 we read, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. O Bethlehem, O Bethlehem, though you are so small and out of the way, out of you will come Israel's greatest leader. And I want you to know this morning that not only did God ordain for that young couple to go to Bethlehem, but he ordained for there to be no room in the inn. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David. It had to be the city of David. It had to, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house and lineage of David. Joseph couldn't go alone. He goes to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child in her ninth month of pregnancy. And while they were there, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger in a feeding trough because there was no place for them, there was no room for them, the traditional rendering in the inn. Do you know why there was no room in the inn? Because God designed it that way. I want you to think about that with me this morning. Now, Luke in his gospel uses the term inn in two slightly different ways. In Luke chapter 10, we have Jesus telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he speaks of the inn where the Good Samaritan took the man who was beaten and robbed to take care of him, to have the innkeeper take care of him. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the inn he refers to is a simple place, a simple building, where you would go and you would pay a fee, you would be given a mattress to lie on on the floor, you, if it was cold, a fire would be lit for you, you would be fed and your animals would be tied up at the end of the inn building, your horse or your donkey, whatever you happen to be riding, and they would also be fed. But in Luke chapter 2, the word he uses for inn here is slightly different. It was a smaller building. Again, very simple, but the animals were not tied at the end of the building. They were actually placed in a barn, but it was actually a cave cut out in the side of a mountain and that's where your, you would take your animals that's where they would be bedded that's where they would be fed and taken care of while you stayed at the inn and when Joseph and Mary come to this inn there is no room for them now over the years you have probably heard dozens of sermons about no room at the end and lots of speculation as to why there was no room. It could be that Mary and Joseph who were poor peasants from everything we're told in scripture simply couldn't pay the fee. It could be that because Mary was about to give birth 
the innkeeper was hesitant to have her stay there. It would have been uncomfortable for the guests in the close proximity in which everyone stayed there. It would be possible that it would have just been awkward for everybody to have her there. But the most prominent reason given that you've heard many times is that it was just too crowded. And that is also very possible. I like what one writer said. He said, remember, not only were people from the family of David from this particular lineage coming to this town, so there's all kinds of Israelites, always all kinds of Jewish people coming, but he said, remember, all kinds of Roman officials would also be there because they would be the ones conducting the census. And they couldn't stay in Jewish homes because they were considered unclean by the Jewish people, so they would have to stay at a public inn. So there would have been a lot of people there, and that is very possible why Mary and Joseph couldn't find room there. But whatever the reason, the human reason for there being no room, the ultimate reason is that God ordained it to be so. If God wanted, he could have provided a room there. God wanted, he could have caused them to build another inn because of the census and had room for Mary and Joseph. But God ordained that his son should be born in the conditions of the poor, in the lowliest means possible on the earth. God ordained it to be so. So Jesus was born in a stable and laid in a manger because God ordained it to be so. As we will see in just a few minutes, God wanted his son, ordained for his son to be born into poverty. In Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5, we have those famous verses where it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. R.C. Sproul has a magnificent sermon on this passage in which he says that all of history was pregnant. Not just Mary was pregnant, but history was pregnant with the fulfillment of prophecy. It was all about to come to fulfillment in this little town of Bethlehem. The Messiah, the Savior, the King of Kings was about to be born. He was about to come into the world. God in human flesh was about to come into the world and the fullness of time had come. And it's going to take place at the ordination of the living God in a barn, in a feeding trough among the animals. And so our second question this morning is why? Why? Why did God allow his son to be born into poverty among the poorest of the poor in conditions that seemed so unfit for the coming of a king? And really we should say not why did God allow, but why did God ordain? Why did God ordain his son to be born into poverty? Literally among the lowliest and poorest of the earth, and we have to admit this seems so contrary to human reason and human thought. If a king was coming into the world, you would think that the king would come to a palace, that he would be clothed in the finest robes and linen 
of the day, that there would have been great fanfare, that there would have been trumpets. I mean, I think even within the past year when Prince William and Kate Middleton came to the United States and you saw them on the news and they met President Obama, they were invited to the White House and everywhere they went, they dined with celebrities and all kinds of wealthy and famous people. And we as human beings, we are obsessed with, we are so drawn to those who are rich, who are famous, who are beautiful. We see them on the internet, we see them on our television sets every single day. And yet, that's not how Christ came. He comes to Bethlehem in obscurity. Very few people knew that a king was born, that God in human flesh had come into the world. So contrary to how we would have done it. But not only that, I want you to think that his first coming was very different than his second coming will be. When Jesus returns a second time to set up his millennial kingdom, as recorded in Revelation chapter 19, he is going to come riding on a great white horse. He is going to come as our warrior king to defeat his enemies. He's going to be accompanied by an army all dressed in white. On his robe and on his thigh he will have written king of kings and lord of lords. And he will rule and reign forever and ever, but not so. Not so in his first coming. In his second coming he will be the conquering king in his first coming he must be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Why? Why did God allow his son to be born into poverty? Why did God ordain for his son to be born into poverty? I want to share four reasons with you this morning. More could be given. Four reasons why God, the God of heaven and earth, ordained for his son to be born in the lowliest of conditions. First, Christ was born into poverty to show that he had come to die, to take upon himself the sins of the world. In theology, this is known as his humiliation. We see in Philippians chapter 2 what is known as the kenosis, the self-emptying of Christ, where Christ made himself, Paul says, made himself nothing taking on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And let me ask you this morning, would it have been fitting for the man who was to die naked on a cross to be born in a palace? Of course not. He had to be born just the way he was. Nothing is more fitting for Christ than to be born in a manner that shows that he laid aside his glory to take the form of a servant. Don't miss this morning, he was born in that barn for you. He was born to be a servant for you, to be the ultimate lamb of God, the sacrifice for sin, the substitute who would die in our place. Second, Christ was born into poverty to show that he is the king of the poor. The poor and the outcasts knew Jesus was one of them because of the way that he came into the world. And let's be honest this morning, most of the world is poor. 
We live in one of the wealthiest nations on the face of the earth. Most people do not. If you were to take all of the countries, especially the th all the third world countries of the world, they live in poverty compared to us. The poor make up the majority of the people groups located all around the world. And Christ identifies with them and they identify with him. When Charles Spurgeon preached on this passage back in the 1800s, he said that the greatest military commanders are those who have the human touch, those who are not afraid to mingle with their soldiers on the front lines, those who are not afraid to get their hands dirty in the trenches of warfare. And he said the greatest commanders are those who walk where their soldiers walk. And the soldiers know that if a commander has walked where they have walked, Spurgeon said, then they will follow him to the ends of the earth. The poor of the earth know that in Jesus they have a friend who cares about them. Folks, there are millions, if not billions, of people right now who are living in an existence of dire poverty and I want you to know Jesus came for them. Jesus died for them. Jesus longs to be their savior. Third, Christ was born into poverty to show the humble of the earth that they are welcome to come to him. These overlap a little bit, but they are important reasons for why God ordained this. The very manner of Jesus' birth was an invitation to the humble to the rejected, to the abused, to the mistreated, to the forgotten, to the overlooked, to come to him for salvation. And I want every one of you here today to know, no matter what your background is, maybe there are some here this morning that were molested as children. Maybe you were abused by your spouse. Whatever your difficulty, whatever the tragedy of your background may be, Jesus invites you to come to him. Jesus understands you. He understands your pain. He understands where you have come from and where you are. We might be afraid to approach a mansion or a palace, but we would never fear to approach a stable and a manger. Maybe on your vacation, many of us have at one time or another driven by a great mansion or palace. I'm not just talking about a big, nice house. I'm talking about a mansion or a palace. And you drive by and it usually has a big wall or gate fence in front of it. It usually has a very sophisticated security system. And all you can do is admire it kind of drool over it from a distance and you know there's that sense in which we feel I'd almost be afraid to go in there I don't know how I'd act if I went in there oh but not so with a stable not so with a manger it invites everyone to come no matter who you are no matter what your background may be all of the outsiders of the world 
instinctively, instinctively have a kinship with Jesus. And again, most of the world are outcasts, outsiders. They're not among the wealthy. They're not among the famous. They're not among the beautiful. And they have a special kinship with the king who was born into poverty. Fourth, Christ was born into poverty to show that he is a true priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and would be tempted as we are. Oh, the Levitical priests of the Old Testament, most of them, especially the good ones, ministered on behalf of God. They sought to worship God, but Jesus is the ultimate priest, the priest who can sympathize with every person who comes to him, who has been tempted in every way as we are and understands us in ways that no one else can. We think of those famous verses in Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, let us then, brothers and sisters, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, you can come to him anytime with any problem, with any hurt, with any pain, knowing that you will find mercy and grace to help you in your very time of need. Let us remember that the baby born in the manger went on to become a friend of sinners, a man who ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. And so I want to impress upon all of us this morning the fact that there was no room in the inn turns out to be more than an incidental detail. It is central to who Jesus is. God ordained that there would be no room in the inn. He planned it that way because his son, our king, our savior, must be born in poverty he must be born among the poorest of the poor. And that brings us to our third and final point, and that is four important lessons. So we go from four reasons to four important lessons, and we will close with these. Number one, let us learn again that God uses difficult circumstances that make no sense at the time to accomplish his sovereign purposes. God uses difficult circumstances for our good. Oh, I think of Mary and Joseph, this young couple. When they came to the temple to dedicate Jesus, to go through the purification rites and have him circumcised according to the law, they gave the offering of the very poor. They could give either two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And according to the law, that's what the poor would bring. If you didn't have a ram, if you didn't have a lamb, if you didn't have a goat to bring, you brought these birds, which shows us how poor Mary and Joseph were. And in Mary's ninth month of pregnancy, Caesar Augustus orders the census to be taken, and so they have to travel from Nazareth 
to Bethlehem and they had to travel by way of the Transjordan because they couldn't go through Samaria because devout Jews would never travel through Samaria. And so the distance at that time from Nazareth to Bethlehem was approximately 90 miles. It would have taken, especially with a woman in Mary's condition, would have taken six or seven days of hard travel to make it. And I say that to you because sometimes we forget how human Mary and Joseph really were. We see them in our manger scenes. We kind of exalt them. They were devout, a devout young couple, but they were human just like us. And you have to believe that when they came to Bethlehem, they were physically exhausted. And they were probably emotionally exhausted and mentally exhausted. And they come to the inn and they're turned away. And you wonder if Mary turns to Joseph and says, Joseph, can we take any more? I don't know if I can go through any more of this. And guys, we know sometimes when our wives have needs, sometimes we're exhausted too. And we grapple with how to comfort them and how to minister to them. And I'm sure that's how Joseph was at this time. They were probably at the end of themselves. And yet God was powerfully at work. Right in the midst of their difficult circumstance. Remember, they had to lay out there. They had to sleep out there in the cave with the animals. That's where Mary gives birth. And yet... They were part of one of the most amazing scenes in the history, not only of the world, but of the universe. She gives birth to God in the flesh, to the Son of God. Let us remember, no matter how difficult things get in our lives, God is at work in ways we cannot even comprehend. It may be that difficult marriage. It may be that difficult work situation. It may be that you have some kind of difficult relationship where someone isn't even talking to you and you don't even, and you don't know why. Maybe you've gone through some very unexpected financial hardship that you just didn't see coming. Maybe you've got an adult child who's wandered far away from the Lord and there is no sign whatsoever that he or she is coming back to the Lord. Maybe right now, as we meet, some of you are enduring the pain of illness. I just want to encourage you that the Bible encourages us over and over again. God is at work. God is at work in your life. He cares about you, and he is doing things in life that you, in your life, in your life, that you don't even fully comprehend. Second lesson, the world had no room for Jesus in the first century and it has no room for him today. When Jesus was born, most of the world didn't even know. Some shepherds did. Those who may have helped him out at the barn, at the cave may have. But the birth of a king, the birth of the Messiah, the birth of a savior went for the most part completely unnoticed in almost total obscurity. And you know, we have to be careful that we aren't too hard on the innkeeper or on the people at the inn. It isn't that they just rejected Jesus. 
It's just that they were preoccupied. Most of them had traveled to Bethlehem too. They were worried about their own concerns and their own problems, caught up in their own life, that for the most part they just ignored that pregnant woman. And you know it's the same today? Oh yes, there are some who outright reject Christ, but most people don't outright reject him. They just are too busy for him, too caught up in their own problems and their own routines and their own daily lives that they just don't have time for him, which is really the same as saying they have no room for him, which reminds us of why we must be faithful with the gospel because if they don't hear it from us, if they don't hear it from us, they're not going to take the time to think about it. They won't. That's why God calls us to be gospel messengers. I loved what one writer said. He said, if Jesus were born today, he probably would be born in an abandoned, run-down apartment building or maybe way out in a field somewhere or in, a, in an obscure village somewhere, the name of which most of us wouldn't even know. Third lesson. Jesus was born as a poor outsider and remained that way throughout his entire earthly life. And I say to you again, let us remember Jesus has come for the outsiders, the people who feel like they don't belong, that they don't fit. Here he is, the creator of the universe. Don't ever forget that. I, I dwelled on that quite a bit last year. That baby born in the manger, he created you. He created the heavens and the earth, and he sustains every atom and every molecule every single day of existence. But he was born in straw among the animals in the lowliest of conditions. He was raised by very poor parents, as far as we know, a peasant couple named Mary and Joseph. He told his followers in his adult life, the foxes have holes. Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As far as we know, Jesus spent his adult life with no permanent home, no home. He lived in the homes of his followers, and they ministered to him as he traveled as an itinerant preacher. All Jesus really had were the clothes on his back in this earth. And when he died on the cross, if you remember, the Roman soldiers gambled. They cast lots for what clothes he did have on him. No, he was born an outsider, and he remained that way throughout his earthly life because he has come for the outsiders. He has come for the outcasts to bring them salvation. And as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, to point us to a better world to come to a world that he has designed for us where we will rule and reign with him. Fourth lesson. Fourth lesson. Those who follow Jesus today will never feel at home in this world. We will inevitably be outsiders just as our master was. Have you ever noticed in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, maybe you've noticed this before, but it's, it's a tiny detail, easy to overlook. We tend to say at Christmas there was no room for him at the inn. And that is true. 
There have been songs written about that. No room for him. No room in their hearts for him. And that is true. But do you notice what it says? It doesn't matter whether you have the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, the ESV, or the NIV, or whatever translation you might have. Do you know what it says? It says there was no place for them in the end. It doesn't say there wasn't just no place for him. There was no place for them. There was no place for Mary and Joseph. And they spent that time out there with him. And so it is today. Folks, we will never feel at home in this world. I hear a lot of people saying today that our American culture is becoming more and more hostile to Christians. And it is. But we need to understand something. It has always been that way. And that's why I encourage all of you from time to time to study church history. Folks, we have always been outsiders. We have always been outcasts. The people of God, the children of God, have never felt at home in this world. There is nothing new about that. Now, we need to be salt and light. We need to influence our culture in any and every way that we possibly can. We must love our families, love our church family, and be as involved as we can. But we will never be truly at home in this world because our master wasn't either. And that's why he was born in a stable, laid in a manger among the lowliest of the low. In fact, your master bids you to come and die with him. He bids you to take up your cross, to die to yourself, and to follow him. In Mark 8:34, Jesus says, or we read, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Follow me. I am the Son of God. I will make you children of God. You may never be at home in this world, but you will be my family, and you will be at home in the world to come. So Mary and Joseph travel 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem in conditions in what one writer called dirty, difficult, and dangerous. They come to Bethlehem only to be turned away from the inn and their baby to be born in a barn with animals in a feeding trough. Why? Because God ordained it to be so. Every single detail was mapped out by our sovereign, providential, gracious God. But if you have the eyes of a child, if you have the faith of a little one, you will know that in that stable, in that feeding trough, was born the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. With your childlike eyes of faith, you will see that that, apart from the cross, was the greatest moment in the history of the universe. Isaac Watts saw it. 
He saw it. And so he wrote, Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart, every heart, prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Let's pray together. Father, we don't often do this. But thank you for the humble, lowly, poor conditions in which Jesus was born. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that Jesus can identify and relate to and be the Savior of the poorest of the poor for every outcast, for every outsider, including us, including us. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much. In Jesus' name.